0: To the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Type 2 Diabetes. Don't sugarcoat it, delivering bite-sized pieces of information to your ears. My name is John Anderson, and I practice internal medicine and diabetes at the Frisk Clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. It's part of a large multi-specialty clinic, and while I have expertise in diabetes, I am a primary care physician. This program is intended for clinicians. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice. I'm pleased to be joined today by Ms. Lucia Novak, a nurse practitioner, and Dr. Josh Stolker, a cardiologist, to discuss today's topic, Should We Be Thinking Differently About Type 2 Diabetes? So Lucia, Josh, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourselves?
1: Thanks, John. Hi, my name is Lucia Novak. I'm a nurse practitioner, board certified in both adult health and advanced diabetes management. And I am currently the co-executive director of the Capital Health and Metabolic Center with Capital Diabetes and Endocrine Associates with offices located in both Camp Springs and Silver Spring, Maryland.
2: And I'm Josh Stolker. I'm an interventional cardiologist in the St. Louis area. Uh, and in Washington, Missouri as well. I'm an adjunct professor um, at uh, St. Louis University, and and I'm also the STEMI director at Mercy Hospital in Washington, Missouri. And certainly as an interventional cardiologist, I see a great number of patients with vascular disease, either in the coronaries or in the peripheral vasculature, and and therefore uh, an enormous proportion of my patients uh, also have type
0: 2 diabetes. Well, Lucia and Josh, welcome. We're going to talk today about whether we should be thinking about diabetes differently. That is beyond just A1C. For example, beyond just being glucose-centric in our focus about patients with type 2 diabetes. To start, Lucia, could you describe a typical patient with type 2 diabetes to set the stage? Give us an overview of what features we should be thinking about for our patients who have type 2 diabetes.
1: So while there is not one single profile that adequately describes every adult patient with type 2 diabetes, What I can tell you are some of the things that we see very often in those patients. Most patients with type two diabetes will have weight issues. In fact, almost 90% of adults with type two diabetes will have underlying obesity or overweight and will have a BMI of 25 or higher. And a lot of patients with diabetes will also have some sort of vascular comorbidity. It has been reported that globally, about a third of adults between the ages of 20 and 79 with type two diabetes will also have cardiovascular disease. When broken down geographically, the North American and Caribbean region have the highest prevalence. Almost half of patients with type two diabetes were shown to also have cardiovascular disease. And in addition, many patients with type two diabetes will also have chronic kidney disease. And in 2015, one in five adults in the United States with type two diabetes also had chronic kidney disease. But type two diabetes is silent and oftentimes these complications may already be present by the time a diagnosis of type two diabetes is made. A 2018 study that involved more than a half a million adults in the United States with type two diabetes showed that more than 90% of those patients had associated cardiovascular or kidney disorders. In terms of A1C, unfortunately, even with all of the available diabetes management tools we currently have, from 1999 to 2014, Half of the adults with type two were unable to achieve an A1C of less than 7% and about 15% had an A1C that was higher than 9%.
0: Thanks Lucia. So we have more than just glucose and A1C to think about including macrovascular complications. So Josh, what do we know about cardiovascular disease and diabetes?
2: Well, cardiovascular disease and, and specifically atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the major outcome that results in adverse events and mortality in this population. So as Lucia said, many adults with type two diabetes have uncontrolled A1C and obesity. Um, And when you have uncontrolled A1C and obesity, this increases the cardiovascular risk in in these patients with type two diabetes. We also know that nearly half of adults with type two diabetes have established cardiovascular disease, as Lucia said. Um, A a large meta-analysis of of eight different studies published between 2007 and 2017 uh, of over 170,000 patients actually showed that 46% of patients with type 2 diabetes also had cardiovascular disease. And uncontrolled A1c and cardiovascular events and obesity increased the risk of, of mortality in type 2 diabetes as well. Uh, one of the big concerns we've had in the cardiovascular realm is that large-scale studies, such as the ACCORD and ADVANCE and VADT studies, uh, which were all published about 15 years ago now, really didn't show a reduction in cardiovascular events with more intensive A1c control, uh, or at least with the therapies that were available at the time. Uh, but now we've seen data from cardiovascular outcomes trials Uh, that show that we can reduce the cardiovascular risk uh, by using certain drugs and, and drug classes that have become available in the past decade.
0: You know, glycemic control makes a difference in terms of reduction of cardiovascular disease burden in patients with type 2 diabetes. But I wonder, what is the importance of blood pressure control, the control of lipids, quitting smoking, and management of obesity? So in previous podcasts, we have discussed aging as an established risk factor for type 2 diabetes and that the burden of the disease is very high in older age groups. And I see this in my own practice, and that is probably not a surprise to anyone, but thinking differently, what about the younger age groups and their risk for type 2 diabetes?
2: That's a very interesting question. Now, the, the younger generation is is less likely to meet goals for treatment and prevention when compared with the older generation, uh, which shows that the younger generation could need additional attention to control risk factors earlier uh, for both microvascular and macrovascular disease. This could explain in part data that show that uh, there's approximately 16 times higher rates of emergency department visits for hyperglycemic crisis in younger adults ages 18 to 44 uh, who have diabetes uh, when compared with older adults with diabetes. And uh, couple this with a shift in recommendations for glycemic uh, targets from clinical organizations, from from absolute A1C targets to more uh, personalized and individualized A1C targets, uh, which take into account patient's age and comorbidities. This shift in recommendations may have unintentionally led to more relaxed glycemic control for younger patients. Um, you know the profile of, of the middle aged and older population with diabetes is also changing. These these older patients with diabetes, uh, they're living longer, which increases the duration of their diabetes um, and, and it may affect their diabetes related risks and of course the complications
0: as well. So Josh mentioned that the recommendations on A one C targets have shifted. Indeed, the American Diabetes Association the ADA and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists AACE guidelines have evolved over the years to become much more similar than they are dissimilar. Lucia, can you tell us more about their recommendations for A1C goals?
1: Sure, ADA recommends an A1C goal of less than 7% without significant hypoglycemia for most non-pregnant adults. ACE recommends an A1C of 6.5% or lower if it can be achieved without significant hypoglycemia or other adverse effects of treatment. However, and what I stress to my patients is that type 2 diabetes is a progressive disease, and it involves multiple metabolic pathways. So, achieving that optimal A1c is going to be a moving target for many of our patients with type 2 diabetes. Unfortunately, the 2014 NHANES data showed that only about 50% of adult patients are actually achieving an A1c goal of less than 7%.
0: So it really is about individualization of therapy, individualization of goals. It is about the patient sitting in the room in front of you. We know there is no one-size-fits-all when treating a patient with diabetes. It depends on a lot of different things, the modifiable features, risks associated with hypoglycemia, drug adverse effects, duration of disease, life expectancy, established vascular complications. And what is the patient's attitude? What are their resources? What kind of support system do they have? And also, what are their expectations? And we are discussing this, but it's almost intuitive. When you sit down with patients, you know really well. So guidelines are clear on appropriate A1C goals. And as you mentioned, Lucia, many of our patients are not achieving those goals. There is a stepwise approach per the guidelines as to when treatment should be intensified if their current treatment and lifestyle modifications are not enough to control their diabetes. Lifestyle modification is the first recommended course of action. Then... If further control is required, the recommendation is that pharmaceutical treatments should be added to lifestyle modifications and intensified as necessary. So what is happening in the real world in terms of treatment intensification? What do we know? So if you look at the ADA
1: and the ACE guidelines, they recommend revisiting treatment protocol that we have established for patients at least every three months if they're not achieving a stable glycemic pattern or an A1C that is appropriate. Unfortunately, the data that are currently available highlight that there are significant delays in treatment intensification, which are prolonging exposure to hyperglycemia in many patients with type 2 diabetes. For example, it has been shown that if a patient has an A1C of 8% or higher and is already on one medication, the median time to intensify with just adding one more oral medication was over one and a half years. And even more concerning are data that showed for patients with an A1C of 8% or higher and already on two or more oral anti-diabetes drugs, the median time to intensify with insulin, for example, was greater than seven years. We also have data that show what healthcare expenditures are if a person has type two diabetes and those healthcare expenditures also take into consideration medication, appointments, those kind of things. But they also break down to some of the other costs that aren't as tangible. For example, loss of productivity, early disability, inability to attend work or school on a regular basis. It doesn't just impact the person with diabetes, but it starts to affect the family that they live with, the community in which they reside, as well as the healthcare system. The burden is oftentimes placed on the healthcare system. So the sooner we can intervene, the better it is for our patients, because we know that hyperglycemia leads to microvascular complications and that hyperglycemia also contributes to the development of macrovascular complications.
0: Right. The clinical inertia, you know, that's also on us as the clinicians. I always say we need persistent, unrelenting efforts at keeping A1C under control. You can intervene early all you want, but diabetes changes over time. It progresses. You've got to be relentless and you've got to keep the patients invested. We know that A1C reflects both the fasting and postprandial glucose levels over a period of approximately three months. And obviously that they both contribute to hyperglycemia. So Lucia, can you talk us through the glucose physiology in terms of fasting and postprandial glucose? Sure, John. So in the
1: overnight fasting period, glucose homeostasis is maintained by a balance of insulin and glucagon levels. During fasting, glucagon is secreted and insulin secretion is minimal. But in patients with type 2 diabetes, there is an imbalance between insulin and glucagon and these patients often have fasting hyperglycemia. In the fed state, or the postprandial period, in patients without diabetes, insulin is secreted and glucagon is suppressed, and this balance is also disturbed in patients with type 2 diabetes. So the hyperglycemia that patients experience in type 2 diabetes is really a reflection of both the fasting and postprandial contributions. And this is different in different patients. It has been shown that patients with lower A1C, postprandial glucose plays a bigger role than the fasting plasma glucose in contributing to hyperglycemia. You
0: know, Lucia, I don't know if you have these patients, but I certainly do. I've got a lot of patients who never check anything but a fasting glucose when they're monitoring. And I think it is essential for patients as well as clinicians to understand that decreasing postprandial glucose is important when you are trying to achieve glycemic control. Do you agree?
1: Absolutely. I think it is really important. It has been shown that almost all patients, 94% of them, with a postprandial glucose of less than 140 milligrams per deciliter were able to achieve an A1C goal of less than or equal to 7%. On the other hand, only about two-thirds of patients with a fasting plasma glucose of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter were able to attain an A1C goal of 7% or less, which is illustrating the importance of the postprandial glucose control and its contribution to the hemoglobin A1C.
0: So what you're saying is reaching a fasting plasma glucose level of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter was not enough to achieve the recommended A1C goal of less than or equal to 7%. The ADA also highlights the importance of postprandial hyperglycemia in the 2021 standards of care. All that being said, A1C remains the primary predictor of complications. Now, Lucia and Josh, you both mentioned the increased risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with type 2 diabetes and the ADA and ACE recommendations have also been specific on cardiovascular risk reduction for our patients with type two diabetes. So Josh, I'm gonna switch gears and turn it over to you. I know the cardiology associations, ACC and AHA, similarly have guidelines for patients with type two diabetes, don't they?
2: Absolutely, and they mirror the recommendations of the ADA and the ACE with the caveat being that instead of starting with patients with type two diabetes and commenting on the way to treat those patients who have cardiovascular disease, It starts with the patients with cardiovascular disease and says how to treat those patients who also have type 2 diabetes. But uh, but it's just a reverse way of looking at which patients are included in the recommendations, because we cardiologists are, of course, initially looking at the cardiovascular disease patients who happen to have type 2 diabetes. But ultimately, the endpoint is exactly the same. Uh, which is trying to get these patients on antihyperglycemic agents with proven cardiovascular benefit or a label indication of reducing cardiovascular events, while also taking into consideration their risk factors, their preferences, and all the other factors we talked about earlier. So these position statements from the cardiology societies are, are critically important because uh, cardiologists have not really been thinking about diabetes for decades. Uh, you know, in some way for the last 30 to 40 years, we've been steered away from making recommendations for diabetes therapy. Um, You know, and and that's basically what we've been taught by our mentors and fellowship, our colleagues in practice. Uh, That's what we've taught to our younger generations of cardiologists. And a lot of that is based on some of the older literature. We mentioned the ACCORD and ADVANCE and uh, VADT trials uh, that that really showed only benefit that was microvascular, not not affecting cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, So traditionally, I think we've Uh, gone out of our way to say that diabetes is for primary care or diabetes is for endocrinology and and we need to change that mentality for cardiovascular practitioners. Um, You know, a great deal of what I do nowadays involves giving presentations on this sort of topic uh, to cardiology practitioners in particular, but also to primary care. um, and, And just basically reminding us that it's time for the cardiovascular world to actually start focusing on selecting the right diabetes therapy for patients who have cardiovascular disease with their type two diabetes. Um, The the good news is that as a whole, uh, I think we in the cardiology world are are now becoming more involved to the point where our consensus statements uh, by the the two major US organizations, the the AHA and the ACC that I mentioned earlier, they, they both come out with very similar position statements, reminding us in cardiology that, that it is our job to be involved in, in helping choose the right antihyperglycemic hyperglycemic drugs. Um, and it's all about choosing those that have proven cardiovascular benefits, meaning a label indication of reducing cardiovascular events.
0: You know, I think that one of the reasons cardiologists, and in fact, all clinicians for that matter, are hesitant to intensify treatment despite not achieving A1C goals is fear of hypoglycemia. So can you tell us, how do you think about hypoglycemia from a cardiologist's perspective?
2: Well, honestly, I, I do think that hypoglycemia is one of the factors that makes cardiologists hesitant about, about tackling an anti medicine for diabetes. Um, you know, we're, we're not experts at avoiding hypoglycemia. You know, we know that it varies in severity. Uh, we know it can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. We know that patients can get confused or shaky or hungry or irritable. Um You know, Obviously, there are the more severe uh, uh, cases of hypoglycemia where patients can get uh, changes in their mental status or their physical status that would require assistance or even syncope. Um, And and we certainly know that the severe hypoglycemia is is linked to increased cardiovascular risk and mortality. But um, the reality when it comes to the cardiovascular focus of all this, for me at least, uh, is that it's more about finding a way to get the patient on the right drug while minimizing the risk of hypoglycemia. Uh, you know, for, for me, this was one of the key points, um, you know, where we, we sometimes need help from our primary care or diabetology or endocrinology colleagues, uh, or we just have to develop a comfort level with medicines that uh, the data or the product labeling uh, suggests are are more or less likely to cause hypoglycemia. I, personally, I've become, you know, quite comfortable over time with stopping sulfonylureas or decreasing insulin doses uh, for patients who are starting antihyperglycemic drugs, Um, with proven cardiovascular benefits. But I've I've chosen to teach myself that and to make myself comfortable in giving that sort of recommendation to my patients. Um, Not all of my colleagues will feel that way. And, and, uh, you know, we need to help educate and encourage other cardiovascular and primary care practitioners to develop this level
0: of comfort when managing their patients with diabetes. Beyond hypoglycemia, Josh, what do we actually know about diabetes and cardiovascular disease? So we
2: definitely know that patients with type 2 diabetes oftentimes have poor glycemic control, obesity, and and more of the standard cardiovascular risk factors, such as hypertension, dyslipidemia, and, and decreased physical activity. And of course we know that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally among patients with diabetes, such that patients with type two diabetes have a two to four times higher risk of death from cardiovascular causes than people without diabetes. In fact, cardiovascular disease is noted in in, uh, more than two thirds of, of diabetes related death certificates among patients over age 65. And and so, you know, patients have substantially higher rates of heart attack, higher rates of stroke than those without diabetes, and this higher cardiovascular uh, death rate. Um, You know, clearly this is an important consideration for cardiologists since, you know, in in my experience as a cardiologist, the majority of my patients are over age 65. And we know that these patients with type 2 diabetes are going to start experiencing these events um, that are going to land them in our clinics
0: or in our hospital services. And we've mentioned the need to intensify pharmacologic treatment for our patients with type two diabetes who are not at goal. But I wanna make sure that we don't forget about the first line of therapy, lifestyle modifications. Lifestyle modifications are important. We discuss them every single time we meet with a patient in the office. Lucia, what do guidelines say about lifestyle modifications?
1: So yes, John, therapeutic lifestyle modifications are extremely important in managing type two diabetes. They are foundational to diabetes management. Both the ADA and the ACE recommend that patients with diabetes undergo lifestyle therapy. This includes smoking cessation as well as the avoidance of tobacco products and certainly weight loss in patients with obesity or overweight by way of increasing physical activity, reducing caloric intake, nutritional education, and the development of individualized eating plans. To help with all of this, it may include sending our patients to medical nutrition therapy with registered dietitians, as well as also sending them to see a certified diabetes care and education specialist, especially if that is something that they have access to.
0: You make a great point, Lucia. It's about using a team approach to all of these patients that we're taking care of. And not every one of us trying to do everything Really, it comes down to what we said before on some of these podcasts. It's about communication. It's about the patient in front of you. And it's about those of us who care for these patients tearing down our little silos a little bit. And those of us in the diabetes world, those of us in the cardiology world, including those of us in the nephrology world, having more open conversations about our patients. Josh and Lucia, thank you both for joining us for this podcast. T2D, don't sugarcoat it. Please join us next time. I'm Dr. John Anderson. Thanks for listening.